Hey, before we get into the, uh, the message this morning, I just want to celebrate a few things. Um, one of our values as a church is, is we want to celebrate stories, and, we, and, and I'll just be honest with you, we really are lousy at it. Um, we do great in our staff times, like we spend anywhere from a half hour to 45 minutes sometimes just celebrating what we see God doing in the lives of people. We just don't translate that well in a broader sense, and so I just wanted to start by celebrating a few things uh, from this past week. Um, didn't mention this last Sunday, um, but we had over 40 women who came together for the women's retreat. And just a big shout out to our leadership team who does a fantastic job putting those the events on for women. And so just really value that. Um, this past Wednesday, our worship and tech team and prayer team kind of fused together and put on an unbelievable prayer night. Um, I know those who came were just like super engaged and blessed by that night. It was powerful. Um, I was sharing with someone just before this. It was probably one of the most powerful like worship and prayer evenings I've, I've ever been a part of, and so I just really appreciate that. And then on Thursday, our, our newest group, our young adult um, group, our Life Together group, which is like the post-college up through 20-something you know, uh, age group, came together and they raked leaves as part of their serve project um, on our campus. Unfortunately, all the trees dropped leaves again. But uh, they, all the bags that are out in front are, are their efforts to rake leaves. I thought that was fantastic. And then um, I, I just want to celebrate. You guys missed all the fun in the first service. Uh, we had a power surge that kind of went through uh, this place, and it knocked out both of our projectors for a good, a good spell in the first service. And our tech team, who just is not appreciated enough for all the work that they do, um, just were right on it and made things happen. They, if you guys don't know, our tech team gets here before, like really early in the morning. They stay through both services and sometimes after the second service, and, and we just couldn't make it happen. So just a big shout out to them as well. So It's just cool to see how God is just working in so many different ways, and we want to make sure that we recognize and celebrate that. Have you ever received an unexpectedly generous gift I mean, maybe it was unexpected because it didn't come to you on like a birthday or on a holiday where we typically exchange gifts, or, or maybe it was, it was especially generous because it was given, and, and when you received it, you realized how well that person really knew you or cared about you, or, or maybe it was just extremely generous because you know how much it cost, how much the person who gave it to you had to sacrifice in order for you to receive it. So how, how do you respond to a gift like that? Um, I was really, really blessed with some great in-laws um, who were the most generous people I think I've ever known. And when Wendy and I were uh, younger and married and when we started having a family, we always seemed to struggle with money. And part of the reason was because we both made significant career changes at the same time. Uh, she decided, um, and we decided together, that she would stay home and, and take care of the kids and leave her full-time teaching job. And about the same time, I decided I was going to go into full-time vocational ministry, which meant money was like really, really tight for us. But it wasn't just that. I mean, to be honest and transparent, we were just horrible with money. Like, we were foolish. We made bad decisions. And in spite of our foolish decisions, my in-laws were just unbelievably kind and generous to us. And they didn't, they weren't kind of generous to us because they were trying to get us to love them more or it was just simply because they loved us. And it wasn't like they put a bunch of strings attached to their generosity, they just did it with open hands. And, and I have been forever shaped by the amazing generosity of my in-laws. When we're offered a gift, there are generally three ways that we can 
approach that. The first thing is that we can just reject the gift. We can just say, no thanks, I'm all set. Or what we can do is we can take the gift, sometimes we take the gift for, gift for granted. And we do this a number of ways. Sometimes we just think that we're entitled to it. Like, ah, yeah, it's my birthday, you're supposed to give me a gift. Or, or, or you know, I just kind of, expect, I gave you a gift, I expect something kind of in return. Or, or we don't appreciate what we've been giving and given and we misuse it. Or sometimes we just ignore it, like it just sits on the shelf and it collects dust or it's in the closet and maybe you pull it out when the person comes over. Or the third thing that we could do with a gift is sometimes we can, we accept the gift with gratitude. And true gratitude is so much more than just being thankful for something. Gratitude moves us into action. Like gratitude moves us to do something good with what we've been done. So the question I want to wrestle with this morning is, how do we respond to the greatest gift that's ever been given to us? We've been going through a letter written by the Apostle Paul from a Roman prison to a group of early Jesus followers in this ancient city of Ephesus. And he spent, he spent the first half of this letter just describing all of the amazing things that God has done, this amazing gift that God has given us. He has talked about how God himself, in the person of Jesus, he, like, he, he took on flesh for us, and, and he became human. And while he was fully human and fully God, he lived this life without sin. He never did anything wrong. And, and he showed us and taught us how to live, how life is supposed to be lived. And then he willingly went to a Roman cross to pay a debt that we owed because of our sin. He died for us. God himself paid our sin debt. And that's grace. And then he rose from the grave and he conquered death. And he gives us a new life now in the hope of a life eternal with him and through Jesus he's offered us this forgiveness of our sins and a reconciled relationship with him and a hope of a life forever with him and and all we can do in response is accept this gift and we accept it by putting our faith in Jesus our faith alone in Christ alone and, and the way that we do that is we just trust Jesus with everything like we just say it's all yours and now, in this letter, Paul shifts from describing what God has done for us to how we respond to this amazing gift. Or maybe more accurately, how we participate in this amazing gift. This is what Paul writes next. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. He starts this chapter by saying, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of, us all, of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. The transition word here, therefore, refers back to all of the things that God has said before, or all the things that Paul has written before that God has already done for us, 
And now this is our response to that. This is what we do. But first, I think it's really important that we have a clear understanding of what is this amazing gift that God has given us. In another letter, Paul describes the gift this way. In Romans 6.23, he says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Another translation of this Ephesians 4.1 verse, it says this, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. And so, Understanding what this amazing gift that God gives us is this. God gives us new life in Jesus. This new life in Jesus is not just the hope of eternal life after we die, die, but it's a new life that we get to live now. It's a life lived with the God of the universe. When we say yes to following Jesus, when we put our faith in Jesus God and the person of the Holy Spirit dwells in us, with us. And He is with us and inside of us. And He's working in us to make us more like Jesus. God's gift in Jesus is not just about where we go when we die. If we limit the gospel to just being saved from an eternal separation from God, then we've missed it. Through Jesus, God offers us new life because we are restored to Him and He dwells in us to transform us from the inside out. And this restored relationship with God and the transformation that He's doing in our life allows us to have these meaningful, healthy, and restored relationships with others. Paul urges us to live now in a way that's worthy of this incredible gift of a new life in Jesus. And he will spend the rest of this letter describing what this looks like. And he starts with how this new life in Jesus transforms how we relate to one another. He lists four characteristics of this new life. And he starts with humility. In another letter, Paul describes humility this way. He says in Philippians 2, verses 3 and 4, he says, Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look out for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. Humility starts with thinking less about ourselves. Paul says, don't be selfish. In other words, Don't make it all about you. When our kids were learning how to talk, it was amazing how quickly they learned the meaning of the word mine. We have a hard time growing out of the mindset of mine. It's the idea that everything centers around me. And he contrasts that idea of me-centeredness with this idea that humility puts others first. Jesus did this. He put others first. And the stories that we read about Jesus and how he lived, he was always putting the needs of others above his own. He had every right to make it all about himself. He was God. 
But he came to serve, and his ultimate, ultimate act of selflessness was when he willingly died for us on the cross, even knowing that there would be some who would reject him. Second, Paul says, don't try to impress. Don't make yourself the center of attention. This is the culture that we fight against today. There is this pull to become famous or to become known. Social media fuels us sometimes um, to be an influencer or our celebrity fascination, which is just weird to me, fuels it as well. This leads us to sometimes put on a false front to make ourselves look or at least seem better than we really are. This is especially true of sometimes how we post on social media. But humility, humility deflects attention away from self. This is also the example of Jesus. There were so many times when he would do something amazing or incredible, some sort of a miracle, and he would deflect attention away from himself and put it on God the Father. Or he never sought a crowd. Crowds always sought him. And when they wanted him to become famous, he would just simply slip away. How many of our relationships are fueled by what the other person can do for us? Perhaps we use them to fill a void of emptiness or loneliness. Perhaps they give us some sort of a higher status. We feel like we're part of the in crowd. Or maybe it's just simply about what they're able to do for us for us, whether it's materially or, or emotionally or physically. However, when those relationships fail to produce what we want from them or when there's a conflict or when they, that person becomes too needy, we distance ourselves from that relationship. and We move on to another because it no longer fills what we want. Humility is the foundation of every healthy relationship. To say to the negative, without humility, relationships crumble because they're always centered on self. Second characteristic of this new life is gentleness. Now, gentleness is interesting because gentleness is one of the things that's produced in us by God's Spirit in us. Some view gentleness as being soft or weak, but gentleness means that we are self-controlled and we're thoughtful, that we have concern for somebody else's thoughts and feelings. It's the slow to speak and slow to become angry part of what James describes how we relate to one another. And spirit-produced gentleness values relationship with the other over the need to be right. Gentleness values reconciliation and common ground over allowing division over what we disagree on. And gentleness listens more than it speaks. The third characteristic of this new life is patience. And what Paul puts into words here is this idea of bearing with one another in love. Specifically, how we are able to be patient with another person. And this, it's the idea of sticking in a relationship in both the good times and in the hard times. It's not so much about a feeling as it is about a choice or decision we make 
to stay alongside someone even when it gets messy or it's inconvenient or it's difficult. It's the opposite of what we see in our culture today where it's no longer, when it's no longer easy for you, it's time to move on. After all, life's too short to waste it on a difficult relationship so we just walk away or we end up ghosting someone. Because of this new life that Jesus has given us, we are able to live with one another in humility, in gentleness, and in patience. In humility, we're able to put others first because we, are no, long, we no longer have to fight to carve out an identity for ourselves. Jesus has given us a new identity that we are a child of the King of Kings. Our security is in whose we are and no longer in what we think that we have to get for ourselves. We are able to respond to others in gentleness because of the work of God's Spirit in us who's continually, who continually reminds us of what Jesus has done for us. Since it is no longer about us, we don't have to be offended when someone says something that hurts us. We can be slow to speak. We don't have to respond in anger. We don't have to feel like we need to win or that we have to be right. We're able to be patient with others even when they hurt us or annoy us because Jesus is so, so incredibly patient with us. Because we have nothing to offer him. We often do things contrary to what he desires for us. We even ignore him. But he's always with us and he's always for us. And nothing can separate us from his love. All three of these, humility, gentleness, and patience, lay the foundation for the fourth characteristic, which is unity. Paul urges us to make every effort to maintain unity. Unity is what Jesus prayed for us right before he went to the cross. And it's recorded in John 17, verses 20 and 21. He says this, he says, I do not ask for these only. And he's referring to his disciples who are right there with him. But also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us. That's us. That they may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is powerful. What is on Jesus' heart right before he goes to the cross? That we would be one. That we would have unity. Not just any unity, but the unity that Jesus experiences with the Father and the Spirit, this perfect unity, this beautiful harmony that they exist in the, per, in the being of God. And did you catch why Jesus prays for this? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. Our unity is a testimony to an unbelieving world that Jesus is real. Unity is not uniformity. Uniformity is everyone singing the same note. Uniformity seeks to eliminate differences and create sameness. 
Uniformity requires control and excludes anyone who fails to conform. But unity, unity is a diverse group of individuals coming together for a common purpose or, or mission. Unity is harmony. It's blending together many voices that are singing the same song. Unity requires surrender and submission to one another. It requires humility and gentleness and patience. Our new life in Jesus makes unity possible, and it's God's Spirit in us that makes it happen. That's what he writes next. There is one Spirit building us into one body. And he fills us with the one hope for eternal life with God. And we are united because we are following one Lord, Jesus, by putting our faith in him alone, one faith. We identify with him through one baptism, where we, we, we symbolize that through our death, burial, and resurrection. And we have one God who is over all and works through us and is always with us. When I look around this room this morning and I know some of the folks who join us regularly online, we are a testimony that Jesus is real. We are the fulfillment of his prayer before the cross. Sitting in this room, we have people on both and neither side of the political aisle. Sitting in this room, we have people from different socioeconomic and educational backgrounds. Sitting in this room, we have people from various races and ethnicities. Sitting in this room, we have people who have different opinions and likely disagree on a lot of different things, right? From raising kids to who has the best ice cream. And sitting in this room, we even have people who cheer for teams other than the Patriots. We do believe there is hope for everyone. Only Jesus can bring us together. Unity is the evidence of God's Spirit working in us to bring us together to accomplish His mission. To remain unified, we must keep the message of the gospel front and center. We must surrender to the work the Spirit is doing in us. We must continue to die to ourselves and put others first. We must prioritize investing in one another. We deepen our relationships, deepen our relationships with one another by intentionally getting to know each other, by opening our homes and gathering around our tables, by asking questions and listening more than we speak about ourselves. We must surrender to God's will and plan rather than be driven by our own preferences and desires. We must be focused on God's mission and His kingdom and not building our own little kingdoms. Which leads us to what Paul writes next, Ephesians 4, 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. And he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who also descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, 
that he might fulfill all things. Paul is describing another way we have been gifted by Jesus in this new life. His, he has given each of us spiritual gifts, which is the third and final point. This new life in this new life in Jesus, this new life in Jesus builds us into a community always on mission. Paul uses a quote from Psalm 68, 18, and he's revealing that this passage that was written centuries below Je- before Jesus actually is a prophecy, is a pointing to Jesus, that he would come to earth and would ascend into heaven and that he would give his church spiritual gifts. Unfortunately, I don't have time this morning to unpack spiritual gifts. That would take an entire series. But what I will say is this, when we put our faith in Jesus and God gives us His Holy Spirit, the Spirit also gives us gifts. These are not talents that we have, these aren't things that we necessarily have learned to do, but these are gifts that the Spirit gives us. And there are lists of these that you can find in Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and they include gifts like mercy and encouragement and leadership and tongues and healing and discernment. And the reason that he gives these gifts is so that we are able to bless others. Not to draw attention to ourselves, but so that we're able to bless others. And then next he's going to list some more in Ephesians 4.11. He says this, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So often when this gets read, it we read this as a list of titles or offices for within a church. And, but when we look at the context in which Paul's writing this, these are gifts that are no different than the other gifts that I just mentioned. So being, evangel- and being an evangelist is not a title that you wear. It's something that you do out of the gift that you've been given by the Spirit. It's why I don't refer to myself as Pastor Jamie and Dustin doesn't refer to himself as Pastor Dustin. And I'm, if you, typically, if you call me that, I'll just say, nope, it's just Jamie. <laughs> my parents never had Pastor in front of my name when they named me. Pastor or Shepherd, as named in this version, is what we do. It's not a title that we have. Think of it this way, typically we don't refer to a teacher as Teacher Tom or a mechanic as Mechanic Melanie. It's also important to note and remember that these are gifts that are given by God. We can't take credit for what's done by Him. There's no place for ego when somebody else is really doing the work. Then Paul tells us why these specific gifts are given. Verse 12, he says, These gifts are given for the purpose of to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves that carry carried about by every sound, sound of doctrine, but 
by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. There's no clearer job description for those who have been called or have been gifted in the area of apostle and evangelist and pastor, teacher and prophet that the gifts are given in order to be able to equip others to do ministry. This notion of equip is this idea of training. It's an it's a athletic term in the Greek, training for something. And, and ministry, let's just be clear on what ministry is. Ministry simply means to serve others. That's what ministry is. We're able to serve one another because of the giftings that God has given us. So many times, those who have gifts, either those who have these gifts, either believe it's their job to do all of that stuff, or sometimes people in the church believe that it's the pastor's role to do all of that stuff. After all, they're the ones who are paid, right? I'm wired as a doer. I tend towards task over people. I find my sense of accomplishment from getting things done. If you're familiar with the Enneagram, I'm a three. I'm the achiever. I'm success-oriented, driven by getting things done and doing them well. For a very long time, I thought my job... I thought my job and my gifting was to do the ministry. But my primary role, what God has gifted me to do, is to train people to do ministry. I'm still not perfect at this. There are still times when I default back into doing, and this doesn't mean that those with these gifts don't serve others. (laughs) One of our culture statements is that we grab a broom, which means that no one is above doing even the most menial tasks, sweeping floors. Everyone serves others and serves however needed, but those gifted, as described here, their primary job is to train or equip others to serve. Everyone is called to be a part of the mission. In the church, There are no spectators and there are no consumers. Everyone is a participant. There is so much dissatisfaction with the church today. And some of it, honestly, is well earned. But I think one of the biggest reasons that there's dissatisfaction in the church today is because it has become something it was never intended to be church is not a place you go it's not an institution where a handful of professionals do the ministry it's not a product that gets consumed it's not a ritual that we go through so we can feel good about ourselves or so we can check some sort of a spiritual box so that we can be in with God. The church is a community of people 
who have found the greatest gift ever, this new life that's found in Jesus and who live this new life together, serving one another as we are gifted. The church is the expression of Jesus to the world. The church is meant to be lived out in everyday life, wherever we are, to a world that is lost and dying. This is God's design for His church. When the church does this God's way, notice what happens. We are unified and we become mature in our faith through knowing God more and more in our relationship with Him. Not knowing more about God, but really knowing Him. We're no longer deceived. We're not deceived by false teaching and we're not caught up in all of the stuff that's happening in the world, like it doesn't just unnerve us and rattle us and we're worrying for days and days on end. We have a unity of purpose and mission. We are able to experience the kind of growth that God desires for a church, which is to grow in a relationship with Him and for us to grow in a relationship with one another. We want to continually become the church that God desires us to be at South Point. We want to be a community of people who are continually amazed and grateful for what He has done for us in Jesus, this message of the gospel. We want to be a community of people living our new life found in Jesus together in unity with humility and gentleness and patience with one another. We want to be a community where everyone is discovering this giftedness that God has given them and using that giftedness to serve other people. We want to be a community that is continually seeking and surrendering ourselves to the will of God and not to our own preferences and desires. We want to be a community that's always on mission. And it's not just when we're in this space or on this campus, but we're always on mission. Wherever we go, wherever we find ourselves, we're always on the mission that God's called us to. We're excited about what God is doing in this church community, and we want to continue to become His church according to His will and purpose and not our own. Would you lean into this with me? Would you pray about this, that we would just continue to lean in as His body, that we would continue to depend on Him and lean into one another and build these relationships as God has designed them, that we would discover our giftedness, that we would serve willingly in our giftedness with one another. Only God can make this happen. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your church. Thank you for what you have called us to Father, thank you for Jesus and all that he's done for us in this new life that you've gifted us. And Father, I confess there have been times I've just, I've ignored it. I misused it. But Father, I, I just am so grateful for the new life. Father, would you continue to grow us in a community of, of people, a family that reflects you and reflects your desire for your church? Father, we, we need you. 
And it's only by your spirit that we're able to do this. And so I thank you. And it's in Jesus' name I ask. Amen.